Diana Chaplin is the Canopy Director of One Tree Planted, a 501c3 nonprofit organization on a mission to make it simple for anyone to help the environment by planting trees. Her role is focused on managing communications, marketing, and storytelling around the many reforestation projects that the organization conducts. She's a holistic thinker who applies the wisdom of nature's systems towards creating connectivity through content that ultimately helps scale the impact of One Tree Planted's work. Diana Chaplin and One Tree Planted, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We really admire your organization and it has projects in, I believe, 25 countries? Six continents. Oh, it's amazing. And the concept seems simple, one tree, but really it's millions of trees now, isn't it? Yes. Yep. We planted over 10 million trees in 2020 alone, and it's one tree planted for every dollar donated. So we make it as simple as possible. But when you add it all up together, the impact is just tremendous and growing every day. Just tell us a little bit about the mission and history, uh, how it all got started. Yeah, absolutely. So our organization began in 2014. And at the time, it was our founder, he saw a kind of a gap in terms of the scalability and simplicity of people that want to make an impact for the environment. There's a lot of organizations doing great work, but if you're the average person that just wants to do something small and you have a small budget, there wasn't really that much available. And so the other thing is also making it simple for businesses to be involved because there really is such a huge amount of capital, amount of opportunity to really support the environment. And it happened very casually he was having a conversation with someone that wanted to do more for the environment and he was like well you should plant trees it's one of the best ways that they sequester carbon they help biodiversity all of these impacts and then I just turned one thing turned into another there was one small project that became another project and it really grew organically and I joined the organization in 2017 early on and really helped to grow and shape now we're a team of 40 people. We have forestry experts on the team, but we really started as a, a young, scrappy nonprofit and just figured out things along the way, really one tree at a time and one country at a time, one project at a time. We learned a lot along the way. And I think one of the most interesting things that has resulted from that is when people think of trees and forests, they're just like, that's the image that comes to mind. But we we know in terms of the projects that we're doing is that it's about so much more than just trees. It's about water quality. It's about restoration after forest fires. It's about habitats for biodiversity, connecting forest patches. Every project that we do has a really amazing, unique story to it. And that's what makes this work, I think, fulfilling and also interesting because of all of the stories that we can share with our donors and our communities as well. And some of your current or recent ongoing projects are in the Amazon, in India. Just you tell us, go into the specifics of some of these so we can understand the impact. Oh my gosh, I love talking about this. I'll start with India. It's a huge country. We're planting, I believe, in at least um, 10 states. Uttar Pradesh is the state that we're planting the most in. And we have two project styles in that region right now. One is fruit trees and the other is mangroves. And so with the fruit trees, even within that, you can bifurcate the impact there because one element of that is actually restoration after natural disasters. So there were some cyclones, Cyclone Fani, which I believe was in 2018, really did a lot of damage. And these are communities where people have backyard trees or very small farms and things like that. The communities themselves were very much affected, but so was their vegetation and so were some of these fruit trees that they had that not only provide a nutritional benefit and an ecological benefit, but also a socioeconomic benefit in terms of the people that have the trees. And so we work with a lot of communities and it's a variety of fruit trees. And so sometimes it's restoring 
after some kind of environmental disaster. Other times it's to create that nutritional benefit or to add to some farms that they may have in an agroforestry type of strategy so that the trees are helping to build the soil, produce food and things like that. And so I love this project because it's very community driven. The photos that we're getting with parents and kids, it's really people that experience a lot of poverty, but they have a very strong connection to the land. And this is a way that they can be empowered in many ways. And we're actually doing something really exciting there this year, which is that we're building several nurseries. So when you think about these massive reforestation projects and you're talking about the hundreds of thousands, the millions of trees, what most people don't think about is how do you produce that many seedlings? There's this whole pre-planting process and structure that needs to be put in place. And India is a huge country as we know. And so with the work that we were doing there, sometimes now I'll preface that by saying in any country that we work in, we always work with local nurseries, always local tree species, that's a given. But when, there's not a nursery around every corner either, that being said. And so there were some transportation of seedlings. And so now we're actually building some nurseries in order to help trees be grown in the environment in which they will be planted. So it's closer to that region. But also this is reducing the need for transportation, which is a logistical process, but also there's carbon emissions that, that happen when you're transporting just about anything. And third, by creating these nurseries, we're actually scaling up our ability to do more quality reforestation at the local level. But a key part of that is always communities as well. And so the staffing that will happen in those nurseries will actually focus on widowed women, as well as other members that are in the community that are socioeconomically disadvantaged or marginalized somehow, as a key part of who will run these nurseries so that there is an employment opportunity and that there's this women's empowerment element. And it's all woven into the trees and reducing emissions and making an environmental impact. And so all of these things are just so intricately connected. And that's, I think, a great example. And we have other projects in other parts of the world that, that are similar, but you really, you need to take people into account when doing these kinds of restoration projects and being able to create the capacity for what the world needs in terms of how many trees we really need to plant around the world. So that's India and fruit trees. And if you'll allow me just one more moment, the other thing we're doing in India is mangroves. And so here is an amazing tree. I personally love mangroves because I am a person that loves the environment, but I also love communication. I grew up in Russia, moved to America. I'm this person that is comfortable in these in-betweens and in these things where two different things join. And I almost feel like the mangrove is like my spirit tree in a way because the mangrove is a coastal tree. It has long roots. It likes to have its roots in water, but then also it's on land. And so these trees store um, about six to 10 times more carbon than your other typical average tree that's on land. They have an amazing ability to sequester that kind of in, in these coastal waters under that seabed. And along the way, they also have amazing marine biodiversity that they contribute to because this is where a lot of fisheries are. These are nurseries where fish and crustaceans and all of these creatures and birds come to thrive in these ecosystems. And then also these kinds of trees absorb storm surges. So when we're thinking about the big picture of climate change. What do we need to be thinking about? We need to be protecting and restoring our coastal ecosystems significantly. There's been a lot of development in many parts of the world and mangroves are our allies in being able to do this. So one of the other things that we are doing in India is to plant a whole lot of mangrove trees, really working with local communities. It's also fascinating how you plant those trees. There's like actually a very short window of time in which you have to do it right based on where the tide is. There's all of these fascinating things in terms of restoration ecology. How do we do this correctly? How do we 
involve local communities and educate local communities so that we're not just doing this restoration work, but we're working in partnership with people so that they have a vested interest, so that they understand why these trees are important. These are fishing communities, by the way. Having these mangrove trees there, having healthy ecosystems and fisheries means more food. So it's all, again, intricately connected. And so that was just India. So I'm happy to go on to other projects, but I think that just shows how as you pull one thread, so many of these things are just connected in a beautiful, amazing, complex way. And can you imagine the, in the other 23 <laughs> regions, I want to also talk about your partnership with the Jane Goodall Institute, but talking about how people can get involved locally, we have one of our students from the University of California at Irvine, and I know you have projects there locally, and he was very interested in those. Maybe you could talk about some of those, or Dani, you'd like to ask about how, how you, you feel about the deforestation there and the devastation and some of the projects they're doing. Yeah, some of the things that came to mind is it's very community-based and community-driven, which is really cool. Friends and I out here, we're trying to do the same thing in terms of trying to work with like urban farming and try to find good and fresh produce in such an urban area because it's so hard to get other than farmer's markets, but those are really expensive and a lot of people can't get it. So it's something that I'm really interested in. But for you, when you, you it's community driven, but it's a, a community that you're so far removed from. So it, it seems like there can be a lot of issues, like when you're going into another region and, and, and trying to do these things. So is, is there ever any conflict or some sort of dilemma with the community members out there? Yeah. Oh, I, I feel like there's several questions rolled into that one. Number one, because we work in so many regions, it is local to that place. So there's places in the United States, in the West Coast, California, Oregon, where we're working with local communities there for a variety of reasons. But the way that One Tree Planted works is we actually have a vast network of on-the-ground partners. So for example, just going back to the India example, we have an amazing India-based local regional organizer who is just one of my favorite humans, just one of the nicest people ever, but he knows the culture. And there's all kinds of political things. Every country has their unique challenges. Sometimes it's hard for us to send money to some places. There's all of these challenges that we have to work around, but it, it's never in a way of like, oh, here's one tree planted telling you what to do and do it a certain way. We always have hyper-local regional-based partners. And usually these are the partners that know the ecology best. They work directly with the local communities. In order for a project to even come to us, it's not like we're looking on a map and we're like, here's what we or the scientist or some kind of higher up knowledge source dictates. It's very much from the roots up. It comes from those local partners that are working with the local communities and they're the ones saying, this is what we need. This is an environmental challenge that we're having. And here's what we propose. And now we, once we planted, focus on the reforestation piece. But a lot of times that's connected to other elements connected to restoration in general. So you may be planting trees alongside a whole lot of actions to stop deforestation. You may be planting trees alongside working with farmers to make sure that the farming practices that they're using are restorative and not destructive. You may be planting trees and bushes and grasses and all kinds of other things. To answer that question, we, we have not really had any issues when it comes to conflict because the way that the project is designed from the very beginning is already taking into account all of these important things. And we're essentially sometimes providing technical advice just based on learnings from what can be helpful and the funding, but also very much leaning on those local communities and our local knowledgeable ecology experts to fulfill that in a way that is already in alignment with what is needed there. So in that case, we're, we're acting as a supportive source rather than a top-down dictatorial source. And then in terms of wherever you might live, I would say 
doing your research in terms of what is available, there's always something to be found locally. There's always local environmental organizations. So if you want to make an impact close to home rather than something that's far away, ultimately it's one world and we're connected. But totally understandable, if you want to get your hands in the dirt, we also organize local events for people to do that. And there's so many like small, like watersheds are a good example, actually. Wherever you live, there is a watershed organization or um, some kind of committee that's focused on the rivers and streams near you and protecting the drinking water sources. A lot of times those small organizations are planting trees um, or they're doing other types of conservation work where you can be more involved in that. And we actually help to fund a lot of those projects. But otherwise, nobody really knows who is their little local organization that's doing these things. But if you do some Googling and go to your town or municipal local resources, you will find those and you can reach out and say, hey, do you need a volunteer? And so you can always get more involved in that. I'm sure they would welcome that 100%. And you're talking about deforestation. And the other thing, and I don't understand it as much as I, I probably should, but it just breaks all our hearts. And I'm thinking because uh, Danny is in California and you also have projects in Australia uh, and in these forest fires and how we're trying to do what we can about climate change. But what are those solutions in terms of preventing those fires? Because I just don't yeah. know. I'm sure it would be wonderful to have a pithy soundbite to answer that question. The reality is that it's very complex when it comes to California and forest fires. Let's back up. So what are some of the drivers of deforestation? Globally, agriculture is the biggest driver of deforestation, but then you have various hyperlocal conditions that are contributing to that. So in California and, and some other regions, we saw this in Australia, but also Indonesia, part, you know, there's, it's happening in many parts of the world and with climate change, it's happening more severely. So depending on that region, there are various approaches. Sometimes it's at the policy level and it really is stopping industrial deforestation that happens. When it comes to agriculture, it really is about working with governments and making sure there's sound policies in place. And something like integrating more agroforestry into these agricultural operations will have a huge amount of benefits because then you will actually preserve the integrity of the land that you are already using for agriculture without continually deforesting its slash and burn agriculture because burning the forest, creating, clearing that land, the fire actually helps to quickly add nutrients, but it's a very short-term return in terms of economic value. And then they move on and all of this destruction and biodiversity is lost. And so really addressing that you need to look at the countries, the states, and really addressing what is the main driver of deforestation in this region and how can we address that and really working in partnership with NGOs, everyday people, understanding these issues, addressing climate change as a global community is absolutely essential because these things are escalating. Another example is infestations. There's all of these kind of unpublicized or not as well-known things, but in Colorado, for example, they have the spruce bark beetle epidemic that is killing hundreds of thousands of trees. And so you have also droughts that are contributing to tree die-offs. So it's quite a complex problem with many causes that are region-based, but looking at some of the top drivers globally, addressing those together, advocating for what needs to happen in your community. And, and this can be really hard. I had something locally, I'm based in Massachusetts and there was a huge initiative. Massachusetts is pretty good with our forest protection policies, but there's still these industries that are constantly trying to come in. And so just being aware, being on various newsletters and things like that, there's people wherever you are working on these issues locally, reach out, get on those newsletters, find out, follow them on social media, and then get involved. And when they say, here is an action that we need you to take, 
around this issue, then take that action, tell your friends, get involved as much as you can. I think having both the local and the global view ultimately for the average person is really the best way to be involved and to stop deforestation as it's happening and then really work to address the massive amounts of environmental restoration that also needs to happen from the damage already done. And then you mentioned, yes, the message is, is so strong and you've given us so many options. You were mentioning about the importance of partnerships. And I know, and I'm sure we've probably planted more trees in, since the partnership began with the, the Jane Goodall Institute, but is it over 3 million trees now in Uganda? 3 million trees planted and restored because that's a plan that also has conservation woven into it. But yeah. That's so beautiful. I think from for so many of us, she was really an inspiring force in terms of awakening our, our awareness of the importance of maintaining habitats. And so, yeah, yeah, tell us a little more about that project. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful project and an amazing partnership. And again, it's hard to speak of any one thing. So the project is beautifully designed in that we're talking about restoration. And as we all know, it's the chimpanzee that, that Dr. Jane Goodall loves and what has started her career and her research. But you can't you can't help the chimpanzees without looking that in, at that entire forest ecosystem, that entire region, the people that live there and some of the conditions that have led to a degradation of those ecosystems. The chimpanzee is now an endangered species. What's happened there over time is essentially forest fragmentation. So as people come in, people have, the other thing is when we talk about people, I, I also wanna be really careful in not having any blame because a lot of times there is a very real survival need that simply is systemic that drives deforestation. People don't want to be destroying forests, but if they need fuel wood to cook, to heat water, to take care of their children, then some of these things end up happening. And so over time, the forests have become fragmented. Some of the chimp populations are more isolated. It's more difficult for them to have the whole forest to roam in, to breed in and all of that stuff. So part of this project aims to create some forest connectivity. And then the other piece is really working with local communities to address some of the causes of deforestation. So for example, helping to provide more uh, efficient wood stoves is one part of it. The other thing is forest monitoring. So this is also part of the project. Communities have a dedicated forest monitor, and this is somebody who is responsible for overseeing the landscape where the conservation restoration is happening so that if there is some kind of illegal activity, that can be addressed right away. This is very important for the protection of the trees that we're planting. And many other elements that are woven in, for example, watershed conservation, and all of these kind of put together. And this project is happening in Uganda specifically, and it's part of a broader ecological region called the Albertine Rift, which is one of the most biodiverse regions in the entire African continent. So when we look globally at how should we be looking at various ecosystems? There are simply some ecosystems that have a, a, a bigger biodiversity value that are just all the more important to preserve and protect and restore and all of that. And this particular region is one of those. So it's absolutely critical. And I believe at this stage, it's a multi-year project. I believe at this stage, we've planted over 300,000. And so we, we have this is in progress happening in real time. So it's an amazing partnership. There's wildlife, there's people, there's nature. Yet again, sorry if this is just a theme here, but just an amazing connection to be made there. No, your love for nature is uh, infectious, so never uh, apologize for that. Uh, so Diana, I had a quick question. When you're planting these trees, what like stage are they at? Are they little seedlings or have they already sprouted and you're just planting them in? Most of the time, I'm sure it changes up based on region and, and who you, the nurseries you're dealing with, but just in yeah. general, kind of. 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the majority are fairly young seedlings. Some projects where it's a more of an urban environment, those trees do have to be more mature. They have to have more developed root systems in order to survive the harsh conditions of the city. But for the most part, they're fairly young seedlings. So they're grown in the nursery and they're maybe about that big and um, then they go in the ground. And depending on the project, sometimes soil amendments are added. If you're in an area that had a lot of soil nutrition loss, maybe there's compost added, things like mulch might be added and all of that. But yeah, they do tend to be pretty young trees. And also like you're going back there to you were saying about people that we shouldn't, you don't want to demonize people or say that they're to blame because sometimes these things happen as a course of just people having their livelihoods. And another aspect of that too is that often we think about technology and capitalism as something that's of course damaging our, our planet our home but there are also many positive ways as i understand how gps and things like this can be helping with your reforestation and, and conservation projects yeah that's actually a huge focus for us this year in 2021. This is very much an emerging technology. There's, you know, there's pilot projects that are happening with big organizations that we're a part of right now. There simply is not any single source that can cover the whole world right now when it comes to detailed satellite imagery. There's various technologies, but some of them you look at it and it's pixels. They don't have the sort of camera quality to be able to really zoom in at the tree level. It's very much emerging. And this, I think you're absolutely right that this is a case where technology will be a huge help because it will help us be able to identify reforestation areas. It will be be able to help us monitor tree and forest growth over time to collect research and develop strategies in a climate changing world at the same time. And it will allow us to create more transparency for our donors. Right now, there are some apps here and there, some technologies where this one is working in Africa only, this one can do this only. But for us as a global organization, we need to develop a strategy and a technology that we can apply anywhere for from Brazil to the Congo to Australia, et cetera. And so that is something we're really doing a lot of piloting with. We just recently added a new member of our team that we're all very excited about that has satellite imaging and, and mapping experience. And so this will be a very big focal point for us as well as working directly with these cutting edge technology partners in order to actually, as an NGO, help them to develop the technology because they need to know the practical challenges. What do we need? How do we work? How are the trees being planted? How are the forests being identified? What exactly is the data that needs to be captured, that needs to be documented? It's very much all being figured out right now, to be quite honest, and it's very exciting to be a part of it. So we really hope to integrate this much more in the years to come. It's very exciting. I'd, I love to see your website is a great source for anyone who hasn't already visited OneTreePlanted.org. My name is Joaquin Lozano, and I am an associate editor for the creative process focus on interviews relating to climate change. I am a rising junior communications and leadership major at the University of Texas at Austin. Over the course of this wild past year, I have been using the additional time that I have been stuck indoors due to the pandemic as an opportunity to educate myself in a variety of fields that extend beyond the reach of my communications major. I have developed a love for the natural sciences, especially biology. We live in an historic time in which the decisions we make now will affect all of humankind and the entirety of the globe more than any of the past generations have. What we do now could ultimately lead to the demise of our species if we don't make serious changes. However, I prefer to look at this as an opportunity for us all to be heroes. Never before have we been given an opportunity to save all of humanity like a true superhero until now. Let this opportunity empower you. And One Tree Planted is a great place for us to start helping the earth heal. Diana talks about how One Tree Planted is about more than just trees. It's about biodiversity. I think that is what we must all be aware of as humans. 
The earth is one huge ecosystem and we are just one part of the ecosystem. For years we have been taking more than we have been giving and it has really upset the balance. In order for us to work against the climate crisis, we must preserve biodiversity and help out all of the individual organisms that help us. I find One Tree Planted to be truly inspirational because it is working to maintain the world's biodiversity through projects such as planting mangroves, which house some of the most biodiverse aquatic ecosystems on the planet. One of my ultimate goals is to eventually serve as a delegate at the United Nations Convention on Climate Change, and it's programs such as One Tree Planted which inspire me. I plan to help the world one day in a similar way to how Zayana is by showing people how important it is to take care of the planet we live on and by showing how important it is to preserve biodiversity and promote sustainable ways of living. Now back to the interview. Enjoy. I've been thinking lately as well, it's so wonderful to see how you are enacting different kinds of systemic change. And I was bringing it up there and I, I don't know the answer, but querying, I know you have certain partners or people that, you know, businesses that you know, they're helping. I think you have the uh, Million Tree Challenge, but I was wondering what your thoughts are in terms of systemic change uh, to capitalism. You see it on the ground with the different people, different um, regions you work with. Yeah. I think it's very much needed. And what we're seeing really just in the past couple of years, especially, is that these big corporations, they're more aware than ever that they have a responsibility, that they have contributed to some of the damage that's already been done. But I talk to a lot of these partners every single day and many more than ever now have sustainability teams. They are planting trees with us as one part of their overall sustainability programs. But they're also looking at their supply chains. They're looking at employees and engaging employees, they're monitoring their carbon, they're changing their packaging. Really many of them are coming around. Finally, some of them are kind of came earlier to the sustainability party than others. But I think the good thing is that we're seeing that shift happen. And I think in the years to come, it's honestly inevitable. And it's just in alignment with what their customers want, what their communities want. More than there's now research that shows, for example, millennials and Gen Z, they don't just want to uh, buy from a company that's doing some kind of social or environmental good. They expect it. They ask questions. They resonate very well with this. And if not because it's the right thing to do, many of these companies are doing it because of the pressure from their customers. And I think that's what shows that, again, for that average person, those things matter. Your buying decisions really matter because some of these traditional companies, when they're seeing competitors coming up and the competitors have a value proposition, practically speaking, because they are sustainable. They have some kind of give back as uh, just a part of how they do business. They're stealing market share from these corporations. So in very practical terms, um, bigger companies and medium-sized companies are very well aware of this and they're making these changes happen. And the really, the best ones are integrating this full suite across the products that they make and how they communicate this. So that I think is very positive. And then of course, Greta recently uh, made a video where she calls things out. And I personally am like, yeah, girl, because she just says it, she cuts through the noise. And sometimes there's these massive initiatives and she's right. Sometimes at the government level, at these global stages, there's all these conferences and all this talking and years go by and you're like, where's the action? And there's all oh, the next meeting when it's very slow moving. And so that's where we definitely have some room to make that transition much faster. But what we're seeing as an organization, that's not too, like, obviously we're connected to that, but we're not too integrated in that. What we're seeing is that the direct action, the trees are being planted by some of these companies when they're like, okay, we want to do something. Uh, we want to plant a hundred thousand trees. 
like those trees are going in the ground next planting season. That impact is made for nature much more quickly. And that's, I think, one of the advantages of if you have a small business or if you're the average person, you're able to use your buying power. If you're on social media and you like a brand, don't hesitate from DMing them and being like, what are you doing for sustainability? Because I think that kind of pressure, there is someone that is reading those DMs. And I will tell you that when they see trends like that, they bring it up. And when it comes up again and again, that makes the companies pay attention and that will motivate them to shift their practices. And then they end up working a lot of times with nonprofit organizations like ours which is in some ways change is happening quicker. But of course, we need to change the green energy economy and all of these many things at the same time. And, and that's you, one way that they engage with you is the, the Million Tree Challenge. Yeah, we have several initiatives. So the Million Tree Challenge, it has been focused on restoration in California because of the immense need that was there from the forest fires. We're actually now considering how to transition that overall program. But the idea is taking a need in some part of the world or for some specific impacts such as climate or biodiversity or social impact or water, something like that, unifying projects and then allowing a very very easy way for a business to just be part of a, this bigger initiative. So the Million Tree Challenge has focused on restoration in California, and we're about to shift it. But we also have others. So we have one of our big global partners is the World Resources Institute. They're an amazing research organization. They have satellites in the sky. They run uh, Global Forest Watch, which is actually an amazing mapping tool that you can look at and play with various filters to see deforestation stats around the world. So we partner with them a lot and we created this fund called the Terra Fund. And essentially this is a way for companies that do have a budget to help and that are open to where those trees are planted. This is a way for them to be able to plug in and make their impact very quickly. And those trees are planted within a year. So we have a few of these kind of high level initiatives that, that generous donors or businesses can easily plug into to make a collective impact quickly. Yeah, I live in the greater Los Angeles area and during those deforestation fires, it was incredibly difficult because I have siblings and, and friends that have asthma and the air quality was so incredibly low for such a long time and it's, it really takes a massive toll, like just being around that. And it's also a very dense region. There's a lot of people that live here. So a lot of people are dealing with this. Yeah, there's a lot that can be done with that. But what I was going to say earlier is you can even skip the DMs when you're uh, talking to these people and just comment right under their post. Yeah, Get even talk. more light to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Get make even it more light to it. Yeah, exactly. Because then they respond, they address it. And now on the, on the one side, if they're not doing enough, it puts pressure on them to really bring it up to the higher ups and do something. But the other thing is there's actually a lot of companies that are doing really good things and they're just not really talking about it. And so in some cases they might be like, actually we have have this amazing sustainability program and here are all the things that we're doing. And then you can be like, wow, I really didn't know that. Now I'm, I love you even more. Now there's this affinity that happens. We find that on the communication front, some of these organizations are doing great work and we're like, why aren't you talking about it? You really should, you should do that because the more that they do, the more it normalizes sustainability. I feel like we've also seen a shift in recent years that went from being an environmentalist as somehow a fringe thing, like you're some hippie woo-woo person if you care about those things. And it's really going mainstream. And the more of these kind of large corporations or influential people, whatever it might be, like all of your friends circle, the more people talk about it as, yes, it's an obvious thing. Like, of course, if there's something being built, it should be built in the most sustainably friendly way. Of course, we should be restoring the environment. Of course, we should be, you know, having municipal systems such as recycling, composting, education and awareness around how the average person in your everyday actions can be as sustainable as possible. The more that 
this is talked about in everyday conversation and becomes a normal thing, the more and more quickly it will scale and grow. So yes, 100% do those comments and anything you can to help the cause is a wonderful thing. Oh, you've given us so many pathways and I just love it. I want to hear, I don't know how many of your different sites around the world you have visited. I mean, I know it's all coming into you as communications. Well, you're a communications manager, but you're really, your position is canopy director. Yeah. Yeah. We like to have uh, tree titles for all of our staff. And I like Canopy Director because I manage a department. I have a very kind of high level view of everything that our organization does and very connected to our founder, his vision, kind of what we're moving into. So Canopy for me just felt like the perfect kind of thing that high level, but I'm really like canopy to roots because I also connect with a lot of people that are doing all kinds of things throughout our organization. And I do get to go to reforestation projects. One of my first experiences with One Tree Planted before I was even a full-time staff member, I had just started organically by doing a little freelancing actually. And I went to a reforestation project in Colorado that was a post-forest fire restoration objective. And that, that experience changed me forever because I had up to that point never stood on land that had experienced such destruction. It's very sobering. It's very emotional. I found it to be like, it really just hit me in my heart to look around and see the landscape that is just burned. There's just snags and seemingly nothing for miles. But then that was quickly followed by, okay, here I am with a bunch of people and a bunch of shovels and a bunch of trees and a positive attitude. And here we are to, to do something about it. And that was one of my first experiences with One Tree Planted. And it's really informed why I do this work and why this work is so important. So there, so I do get to have these profound experiences that are very much connected to the mission of the organization and that hands in the dirt. And I'll say that that particular project, depending on the region, I've now been with some projects where it's the soil is nice and soft. When you think of tree planting, there is like that classic stock image of just like the sapling and you're patting it down with your hands and it's, doo -doo -doo, it's so sweet and gentle. And sometimes it's like that. Sometimes the soil is nice and soft, but other times it's you're talking about some kind of environmental damage happened here. Like that terrain is not always easy. And that project in Colorado, man, I broke a sweat that day. It was very hilly just to get to the planting areas you had to like climb over dead trees you really had to like get in there and then just to climb back up you'd look from where you walked and you're like oh my gosh I have to walk all the way back up there because my water bottle's empty and now I need to refuel so I have a lot of respect for the tree planters and the people that actually get the trees in the ground it is hard work it is yeah it is hard work but also on farms you have regular community people and kids and things like that so it's pretty diverse but anyway I digress on your question but yeah it's very personal for me <laughs> no I love that because it has to be personal as you say we have to feel it as though it's this all this is a home that we all share and it, it, there's no choice because we have to co combat the harmful effects of climate change we have to do all these things like you're doing but really I love to hear the personal and I wonder was your connection to nature like when your earliest memories of nature when you were growing up in Russia in terms of your family and the values that were passed on to you or when was that awakened even before when she planted yeah, I appreciate the question. So I was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, but my family moved to Riga, Latvia when I was just a baby. At the time, Riga, Latvia was part of the Soviet Union. I won't get into that history, but essentially that's where I grew up until I moved to America and I moved to Brooklyn at the age of seven. But in Latvia, I had these precious few summers in our dacha. Dacha is basically like your summer house. And I was very fortunate that my grandparents scraped and saved 
for me, essentially to get this tiny little house. It was like one of the smallest in this area. And they were avid gardeners. We had strawberries, we had gooseberries, we had all these fruits that I can't even find here now. And so that was really my early childhood amazing memories. And my grandfather, especially, who I miss very much. I'm getting beclumped just thinking about him because he passed away a few years ago. But he would take me into the forest and we would go foraging for mushrooms and wild strawberries. And most people have not tasted wild strawberries. I don't think they are just like the most amazing, delicious thing. They're like smaller, but they have a very distinct, amazing flavor that I feel like my lifelong mission is to find them again. But I would just have these special experiences with my grandparents, my parents, your typical parents, they need time away from their kid. And so in the summers, I would go and be with my grandparents. My grandfather loved nature. He is like an old school kind of nature guy. He knew how to forage for everything, made his own compost, would build things, was always just hammering away around the house with like a cigarette and just that kind of rough guy. He, yeah, he's like a Navy guy. I'm He's almost like Popeye, actually. Like, think of Popeye. That's pretty much like my grandfather, but like Popeye in the forest also. And those were some of my earliest childhood memories. And I, like I said, I moved to America when I was just seven. And it was a bit of a sad separation for me because I was very close to my grandparents. But those few summers early on have completely shaped who I am as a person now and why I do this work. And so it's just, I think, a testament to what we do with our children. The values that we pass on to them are amazing. I'm sorry, I'm crying. This is no, it's beautiful. That was really how personal it is, yeah. yeah. It's beautiful to see, to be honest, yeah. And I know you, da Danny, are also very connected to your family. And I want to pip in before you say too, because uh, it's about this knowledge that one generation mm -hmm. passes on to the other and that seen in action we forget that knowledge I'm also about like a multi-generational family where I it brought back memories to me of my grandfather my first word is strawberry and the strawberries that he grew so I know this wild strawberry not quite forest strawberry but yeah that's a smaller and and that was because I loved him so much so excuse me I make me emotional to, to yeah we're all gonna cry <laughs> But yeah, it really is true that sort of these experiences that we have in our young lives make such a huge impact. And so I have kids now, so I try to pass that along to them as well, just a connection with plants, gardening, having them, they don't always want to do it. This is sometimes it's hard. They don't just go along and love it always as much as, as I did when I was a kid. But having that knowledge and that wisdom and that multi-generational connection is just so vitally important. I think, to the long-term sustainability of our planet. And unfortunately, we have more and more kids now that are not connected with that. They live in cities. They have very few experiences with forests. I know in LA, Danny, you, you must experience this or have friends that do. But there's always some kind of green patch somewhere. And I think just connecting with that as much as we possibly can and passing on that knowledge and that love and that wisdom is absolutely priceless. And it might just be what saves us ultimately and through with all of these challenges that we have as a global community. Exactly. Yeah, I grew up in Tennessee and we had so much land there. And I just like remember going on walks with my parents and, and there'd be like fresh blackberries and mulberries and they all taste so different. Like when you go into the market now, it's this is absolutely flavorless compared to what you can find when you're actually picking it. So yeah, I definitely have that deep connection. And then my nephew, he's four, four, five years old, and he lives like in a skyscraper in Philadelphia. And like every time I see him, like I try to get him out of there and we, we will go on a walk like along the river or something. Get him like more a deeper connection to that and like away, away from some computer yeah. screen or something. And you never know, he might be like doing an interview 20 years from now. And those <laughs> walks with you could be what shapes his whole experience. So the yeah, because it was with me, like when, when I, I think about going on those walks with my siblings and now I'm here, yeah. full circle. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
this is beautiful. Yes, because it's person to person. It's one tree at a time. It's one seed at a time. And I, I just, I've been so moved by this. And we've discussed this throughout the whole conversation. But just on reflection, as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, and we reflect on the challenges we face and our different systemic problems, how you'd like us to change, involve our behaviors. What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Yeah, that's an amazing question. I think doing all you can, and actually it, it's gonna take some uncomfortability to, to do these things because sometimes you have to go out of your way to protect what's important to you. The planet that we have should not be taken as a given. If you've studied natural history, you know that our planet can be a hostile place. And if the birds disappear, if the bees disappear, if the plants disappear, it's not gonna be a good future for us. So safeguarding what we have and going out of your way, I think is my key sort of little lesson is do the do the thing that is this next thing that's a little bit harder. So maybe you're already recycling, but you can probably do a little bit more. And so taking that extra step it is important because if it is important, nature should be important to all of us. It's what sustains us. And we're going to have to fight for it, essentially, to create a healthy and thriving world because there are some massive challenges ahead of us. But I'm also very optimistic, too, because when I see my kids, they love playing in the dirt. They love being outside. Children are very natural in that natural world. And so I think leaning on that as much as possible, creating those opportunities and sharing education with them and stepping out of that comfort zone, I think will be amazingly impactful. And put pressure on your local leaders, companies, as we talked about, because if you're just like, oh, there's nothing I can do, or, oh, I'm too busy, then the world is gonna continue as it has been. So sometimes I think this is a challenge that's gonna take all hands on deck to really do something. But there's also so much creativity and so much opportunity that we can engage with and so much wisdom. If you learn about indigenous wisdom and indigenous cultures and some of the practices that they have in terms of gratitude for nature and starting every meeting with just acknowledging that we all agree that nature is important. Some of these small things, there's so much wisdom we can tap into. So I think leaning into that a little bit more will be ultimately helpful as well. I know that was several things and hopefully that's all helpful, but I think there's, it's a multi-dimensional challenge and we'll take multi-dimensional solutions. I love the the nuance and depth because exactly it's not as you say saving one tree species it's a it's these whole uh, restoring entire ecosystems that you with uh, one tree planet do so beautifully so yeah. just thank you and I will that. say and yes. sorry to interrupt but just to bring it back full circle you can also just plant one tree oh, you yeah. know Kind of what we're all about. We understand people are busy and you want to help and make it simple. And planting a tree is also incredibly tangible. And with One Tree Planted, you can choose the region where your trees are planted. So you have that choice in terms of the impact. And that's something super simple that anyone can do to contribute. Thank you. It's a beautiful. I would, would direct everyone, uh, teachers and students and anyone interested to your website at uh, onetreeplanted.org. Thank you, Diana, for all you do uh, to grow our forests, safeguard our future, strengthen communities, prolong civilization, and your commitment to sustainability so that collectively we can create a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice to the One Planet podcast. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Danny Ali with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Joaquin Lozano. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the Climate Change Solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.